This is Top Flight Time Machine. I'm Andy Dawson. Pow, pow, pow. I'm Sam Nifty Delaney. So what? Uh, this is another one of our special Human of Honour episodes. The second yeah, one we've second done. Yeah, second one. It is. First one was popular with Stan Hay. How do we follow yeah. that? Well, we've managed to bag one of our all-time favourite musicians. Uh, we, we, we had a meeting, didn't we? We sat down and said, how do we follow Stan here? And the response that it got, and we both said, at the same time. Mick Talbot. Yeah. Well, the Style Council are one of our favourite... I think we both regard them as one of our favourite bands. Um, They are wonderful on every level. The pop sort of soul music they did in the 80s was extraordinary. But although Mick Talbot was one half of that with Paul Weller, Mick Talbot's also been in loads of other bands and played with other great bands that we love, like Dexy's Midnight Runners, to name but one. Um, And the sort of music he does is always... He's always involved with incredible music. He's been doing it for a long time. And what we discovered is that he is also an absolutely top bloke, isn't he? He is. Lovely fella. Humble to a fault, I thought. (laughs) That's my only criticism. Too modest. Yeah, kind of like us. Yeah. Almost, I think that's why we all get along so well. I mean, people often say Sam Delaney, too Mm. modest. Humbleman. Yeah, a humbleman of the land. Uh, well, what, so, uh, what a guy! Uh, I, I can't tell you how excited I was when he agreed to come on it, and uh, we did have a yeah. few technical problems in this chat, didn't we? we? Did, yeah. We I managed... think I haven't finished editing it yet, but hopefully <laughs> no. it'll all come together and sound all right. No. But uh, yeah, there we go. So uh, enjoy it. Humans of Honor, Mick Talbot, Human of Honor, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, thank you for the lofty billing. I I hope to live up to it. <laughs> Well, this is not a billing that we're, or an honour that we dish out willy-nilly, Mick. Okay. Um, we were delighted that you agreed to speak to us. Um, we've got so much to talk to you about. Uh, we hope you will bear with us as we do that. Um, I guess the first thing to ask you about, Mick, is, is you know, how did you first get into music and being a musician? Um, well, uh, I grew up with my nan and she played the piano by ear and it fascinated me from an early age and uh, it kind of had a magical quality to me because she played by ear so even when you're really small you want to you're inquisitive you want to know how it works how does that happen and and that made it even more magic because you know she didn't read music or anything and so I just badgered her about it all really and uh, she showed me a few bits and um, that led me down the path i'm still following i guess and what sort of music inspired you what was the earliest stuff you remember loving when you were a kid well um growing up in the 60s uh my my mum used to have the pirate radio stations on uh (laughs) being that ancient uh pre-radio one which started in 67 um she used to listen to radio caroline and radio london um, not BBC London um, the pirate station and uh, I think that was the early fledgling years of uh, Tony Blackburn he was a real champion of sort of Tamla Motown and things like that mm. uh, and um, so I think that had a kind of effect on me really um, and in our household my dad liked modern jazz and my mum liked a lot of the you know early soul stuff so um I didn't really understand my dad's music till a bit later on, but um, the soul music sort of affected me straight away. And and I guess all the kind of mid-60s bands that were f- feeding off uh, that influence as well, like homegrown bands, you know, Spencer Dave's group, Small Faces, all of those bands, really. So basically then, Mick, it was a household that was full of music kind of all the time, so you, you kind of got into it all through osmosis almost. Yeah, yeah, my dad was a big music fan. I mean, he, you know, he he, he was in the print. He, he had a proper job, but he used to muck about on the guitar and he could play piano a little bit. Um, and and so when I got interested in music, uh, he was quite encouraging, really. I mean, he, I remember he borrowed like two orange boxes uh, full of uh, seven inch singles off of a mate at work. Well, that was, you know, that was really helpful. I. Uh, I taped all those singles on a cassette and uh, 
it was a real insight to um, a, a kind of deeper version of what I'd been listening to on the radio, really. What? What? So you you were familiar with like, let's say, the big Motown hits and the big artists, and this was slightly deeper cuts. Yeah. Well, these were just rarer things. I think the guy had a particular penchant for uh, New Orleans soul, so uh, it went a bit beyond Lee Dorsey, who I kind of had heard, and it was a little bit. Uh, more raw than Motown, um, which was kind of everywhere, really. I mean, Motown chart busters were uh, really the great compilations of their day, you know. Uh, mm. And so between them and I think there used to be reggae compilations called Tighten Up. And yeah. they seemed to yeah, be yeah. kind yeah. of quite essential things for sort of a youth club of a, a certain vintage. And um, so we had a strong awareness of all those things through those compilations because they seem to be at every uh, party or communal gathering. Whereabouts did you grow up, Nick? Um, I grew up in South London. I started out uh, in Tooting. Um, it was in my nan's council house at Tooting and then we moved somewhere else in Tooting and then by the time I was about six we moved to um, Merton Park which is only like I think my nan's theory was we had a gradual migration. She started off in the old Kent Road, so she got on the the tube at the Northern Line at Elephant and uh, got off every four stops about every 25 years until we got to the end, <laughs> which is Morden. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, you say this was the sort of stuff we were into. Is that the tribe that you kind of... <laughs> you got involved in at school people well, other people who were into this sort of music well i you know i i ebbed and flowed between different tribes because i was trying to learn about music and really early school bands you know even though i may have wanted to play stevie wonder uh the only people that i could get a band together with wanted to play black sabbath so you have to meet somewhere <laughs> in the middle and uh so there were different kind of tribes within that but i tried to uh, be a bit open-minded uh, just in order to do something with other people because it's one thing playing the piano on your own but it's quite a treat to sort of get in a room with like four mates and that's still what I look forward to you know so you're talking about being you know you ebbed and flowed between different tribes what what happened once it got into like the punk era where were you at at that point musically what, what bands were you in then uh, well i was i was still uh, pretty eclectic i mean i just just prior to punk uh, i really liked um dr feelgood who i think were quite mm. a sort of seminal band that influenced a lot of people as much with their image and their attitude as their music um so they were a band i was into but at the same time i had friends who were like soul boys who had that whole sort of wedge haircut uh young american sort of image yeah so i'd go to uh places like the tolworth bowl which was a big soul boy place and we go uptown to the sundown and different places uh but it's like you'd have two or three mates that were into one thing two or three mates that were into others some people that were open to it all uh so uh i don't um i just really once the punk thing happened the first band that i really uh saw out of that lot was uh the clash and um they were on a bill at the roundhouse supporting um the Kersal flyers um i think um, so uh i don't know if you've it's heard kind of, of loose affiliations between all of those genres though isn't it because feel good with rhythm and blues kind of thing but with a rock edge and, the, and then that kind of links to soul and then feel good also kind of linked to punk as well and so you you had that melting pot but it was all sort of in the same kind yeah, of area yeah. wasn't it really well yeah i mean i saw when i saw the clash they were like uh, a five piece and it was really early days for them and uh i think keith levine was in them who went on to being a public image yeah so uh and they uh, that was that what that gig was a bit mad because the middle band were Crazy Cavern and the Rhythm Rockers, which were one of those many uh, Welsh rockabilly uh, <laughs> sub-tribes uh, that, uh, that I think Shaking Stevens emerged from. But lots of uh, people um, 
there seemed to be a thing in South Wales where I don't know if Dave Edmonds started it but there was quite a lot of sort of rockabilly based Welsh sort of things that were flourishing as well so <laughs> that that was a mad gig because it, you felt like there was like three tribes and and I don't know that me yeah. and my friend were in any of the tribes that were, yeah. <laughs> were and, and in gig. those days in, in those days because of the tribes and because of like the gig culture was it there was a lot of aggro in those days being a music I, fan wasn't there oh there was yeah there was a lot of aggro I mean you know I mean a, a little bit further on from just seeing that the, the clash in terms of sort of like the new wave sort of bands or the first half dozen that come through I did see the jam before they got uh, signed um, and uh, it just felt like a bit of a moment I could see parallels with uh, Dr Feelgood like from the image thing and, and the R&B influences and they were playing a lot of covers and um, I had those records so it felt like a kind of stepping stone to something this is this is a band that are more my generation and mm. uh kind of felt like a moment and I kind of like the fact that they didn't deny their history like a lot of the uh, a lot of their contemporaries at the time there was a little bit of a, a denial of any past you know yeah because I was going to say during punk your love of classic R&B would have been something that like most people were sort of putting in the past right that, like forget about that yeah, I guess so. But, you know, uh, even with the Pistols, you know, Steve Jones' guitar playing was quite influenced by the New York Dolls and they were kind of feeding off the stones. And so there was always links to those things, you know. I mean, the, the Pistols were famously... John Lydon was famously into stuff like Pink Floyd and Dubregge and all that sort of thing as well, wasn't he? So there was never a purity to oh, punk yeah, for very long. I think, you know, in their early gigs, they used to cover a few small faces things, you know, way back. Yeah. Uh, Who was your keyboard hero at, the, at that time in your in your early days? Well, I, I really liked uh, Ian McLagan because he'd been in a few bands that I liked and uh, he used the, the instruments that I liked. Uh, you know, I... I appreciated a lot of American players without knowing their names it's only once you uh, get albums and start checking credits you realize that you like uh, Spooner Oldham as well as you like Booker T you might like Billy Preston and all, all yeah. those people uh, but out of the English people yeah him and uh, I guess Steve Winwood as well and and your, your first sort of band of dope would have been the Merton Parkers, is that right? Yeah, that was the first. Well, that's the first band that was signed. Um, I was yeah. in sort of school bands before that, and variations of uh, different things. It used to play social clubs. You know, we used to <laughs> used to used to play what we liked in pubs, but pay what you were told to play in working men's clubs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you get paid more for the working men's club but you enjoy the pubs more and it was a kind of yeah. that was a funny time in my teenage years you know what you what would work at a fries metal foundry in Collier's Wood <laughs> <laughs> might not work at the two brewers in Clapham yeah. and you don't, you don't want to go down badly in a working men's club either do you well, no, no. You 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 learn that you're just uh, support to the bingo or the raffle, or, yeah. <laughs> and could you get out of the way? I'm going to take a shot when the stage is quite near the billiard room. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you, you very much paid your dues, and um, and and you know the Merton Parkers. That was part of what was referred to, I guess, as the mod revival at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and was that with old mates, with, with schoolmates? Uh, well, one of the members was my brother. Uh, the, the other guy, Simon, who played drums. I've been in a few school bands with him. Um, uh, and um, Neil, the bass player, uh, we met. He didn't go to school with us, but three of us went to the same school, yeah. So that had been and a it, sort it, it, of yeah i'd gone through probably three different names with the more or less the same sort of lineup uh i guess
And how did you feel, did you feel that that when you were signed after you know do it, doing years in different bands and stuff when you were signed did that and presumably start getting coverage in the music press and stuff did you feel at that stage that 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 this is going to be a big one for us or were you not the, the or were you always sort of someone who wasn't quite you know you were, knew that music the music industry could be could be uh, a little bit iffy i yeah i did know it could be iffy <laughs> well i thought it could be iffy now i know it can but uh, <laughs> But uh, at the time, no, I was pretty cautious. I, I, you know, I had a proper job. I worked for a shipping agency in the city. And uh, the week we were on Top of the Pops, Top of the Pops went out on Thursday and I left my job on Friday. So for, <laughs> for one day, I was a star in that building, you know. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, suckers. I'm off. <laughs> a, a lot of people wanted to be my mate who wouldn't even give me the time of day. Uh, yeah. Bloody hell! That must have been an amazing feeling. Your first, your first appearance on top of the pops, and then going into an office the next day. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you're clearly not a man who lets things go to your head. But it must have been a struggle not to have let that go to your head. Well, I didn't let it go to my head, but it was interesting that some people seemed to want to know me a bit more. Um, <laughs> you know, but it was like it wasn't uh, any, um, you know number one hit we just barely got it on the show by the skin of our teeth i think we got the number 40 but it felt like a start and um yeah uh there wasn't a rule book to follow (laughs) certainly no and then 79 i think was about the same time and you you played on a track on the jam setting suns album which was heatwave yeah that's right yeah yeah that i mean so was that was that the first time you'd worked with paul weller yeah it was the first time um my brother when he had a normal job he was uh uh, a runner for a ad agency and um he used to bump into paul a lot in soho and paul had an awareness of us there was some talk of him maybe producing us but it never came to that and he he got our first single and he didn't like it and i don't blame him but he listened to the b-side <laughs> he listened to the b-side and there was a piano solo on it and he liked that and he just said you know i want something like that on this and just come down and do what you think and uh that was great you know and that that was a sign of f- things to come, I suppose. You know that that a cover of a of a Motown classic like that being on a jam album, I suppose, was you know a signal to many about the the way the wind was blowing. I mean, when did when did you think that you know that when when did you first discover that Paul was thinking about the future outside of the jam? Um, not until uh, the summer of '82, I guess, um, uh, when. He just said to me, "I've got this new project in mind," and it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really that marked out or specific. But he just said that he thought that you know we could work together, and uh, it was gonna that the jam was sort of coming to a close. Um, I think I think there Did were you- a lot of signs all the way through the jam that Paul was gonna go in the direction that maybe the Style Council mm. did, and particularly near the end. There's a track called Shopping, which is like a kind of jazz waltz. There's a cover of um, Stoned Out of My Mind, uh, an old soul tune. And um, so I think the last uh, few tracks the jam put out were real signposts. But I guess the signs were always there for me. Like I said, the first time I saw the jam, they played a couple of soul covers. On the first album, there's a song about Northern Soul, uh, non-stop dancing. So... It's always been a thread, I guess, you know. So so when the Star Council started, did you have any kind of expectations about how massive it could be, bearing in mind that, you know, the jam were at the height of their powers when, when Paul ended it? Did you feel as though this was kind of almost, your, you know, your Willy Wonka golden ticket kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. I'd been in three bands in three years that had been signed and dropped. So, uh, you know, it came at a good moment. I maybe thought the game's up and I might have to go back to a proper job, but that came in the nick of time. Right. And, and um, you know, what was it like? Paul had the idea and was it a mixture of your, you know, the, the, the similarities in your tastes plus your personalities? Well, we, we, you know, we'd seen each other a few times and I'd worked on that one track, but we didn't know each other that well. But we had a very long meeting and we compared notes and we realized that outside of music we had some of the same books and we like some of the same films uh you know paul's 
about five months older than me, so we've got a similar sort of time frame. We had a similar sort of background. Um, you know, my mum and dad are not dissimilar to his mum and dad, so it, it felt like there was a lot of common ground there that we weren't aware of mm. when we just did the one-off track together. I, I played a couple of times live with the jam, but you're always focused on whatever the set is, and it, we didn't have much time. I mean, we had a brief meeting in the West End, which turned into a much longer meeting because we had so much in common. So we spent, I don't know, three or four hours speaking when we thought we were going to meet for about half an hour. So that, yeah. that boded well, yeah. you know, and um, we had a lot of things that were fairly, not ultra rare, but just like, you know, just there were coincidences. We talked about Ken Loach, you'd say, oh, uh, do you like his adaptions of Nell Dunn stuff and you go yeah I've got the novel and, and, and he go I've got the soundtrack and I go what by Manfred Mann yeah I've got the soundtrack to Up the Junction as well you know right. and <laughs> do you like the TV version of Kathy Come Home better than the, the uh, film version or you know and all this sort of thing you know. <laughs> so once once the Star Council was up and running um, what was the reaction like to yourself kind of from former jam fanatics because the jam were renowned for having a properly uh, fanatic fan base. I think our experimental nature and also the fact that people had invested five years in them, uh, w when we first did a kind of uh, benefit thing, uh, a few people were a bit funny towards me, just said, Oh, you've split them up, it's your fault, and this, that, and the other. I mean, they thought you were the Yoko. Yeah, you were Yoko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know how she feels. <laughs> yeah, but I, that was that didn't last for too long. But I just think, uh, probably, you know, the kind of status that Paul had gave him more confidence to experiment and I had nothing to lose yeah. really you know um, and yeah. it was just uh, enjoyable to just pursue w whatever you fancied you know Was there a single moment sort of within the Star Council when you kind of thought this is it I've, I've kind of you know we've made it I'm, I'm not going back to the day job sort of thing well, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I'm never counting chickens. Um, I still might go back to the day job. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, I think when I, I just term it more artistically that when we did the first proper sessions uh, with Zeke Manjika playing drums, the Orange Juice uh, drummer, yeah. um, we, we got the first two singles out of like uh, just a couple of days uh, playing with him and uh, and a few other tracks as well but just once we've done speak like a child and and that kind of clicked you know you know you were experimental of course now looking back you became mainstays of the top 10 for like a large part of the 80s but at the beginning what was the landscape like you know in, in that in 1982 a band that had that dressed the way you did that had the sort of influences you had you know, uh, you know, large dollops of jazz chucked in there amongst the soul. Just, just how radical did that seem, and just, just how um, scary did it feel when you first put your head over the parapet, so to speak? Um, well, it, it didn't feel scary because Paul had a kind of confidence. Uh, uh, he just knew he, he he enjoyed the liberation, and that there wasn't any sort of pre-ordained thing. Uh, there wasn't a manifesto set out. Uh, I, but I, I guess um, we were a bit different at the time. I mean, there was a kind of a brief wave of people that were vaguely making pop music that was influenced by jazz. So mm. there were some people around, but most of those people were all produced by the same lot. We were mm. never part of uh, the Robin Miller mm. production uh, lot, even though we knew some of them, you know, and um, we collaborated with the... Uh, Tracy Thorne from Everything But The Girl and Ben Watt yeah. and, and so we were aware of them so there seemed some people that had some sort of similar sensibilities about some things but um, yeah I don't know if uh, even though we came out the 80s I don't know that we were particularly 80s band no. <laughs> I know what that means probably no one else does oh but, we know uh, what I mean. I mean you certainly I mean presumably your path crossed with the likes of uh, Spandau and Duran Duran many times but um, it didn't quite fit into that category of music did it no well no but it's not that I'm sort of snobby about it I mean no. I think we had more in common with Wham in the early days really mm -hmm. and not that I would bracket us as a similar act but we used to bump into them quite a lot and uh, you nicked one of their singers didn't you 
<laughs> well, yeah, she was in a lot of bands. She was uh, in Animal Nightlife as well. Uh, they were on the same label as Wham, I think, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, she was a busy girl, but, you know, she clicked. I mean, a, a lot of things weren't really kind of planned out, and we went for things, and we did stuff. D came down, we were doing money go round, we tried her out on it, it worked, and we moved on from there, you know. Jalapeño. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jalapeño. This kind of ties in some with what we were talking about on our uh, 1984. There was so much more um, creative independence back then. Yeah. Nothing was kind of mapped out in the way it is yeah. now for a lot of chart acts anyway yeah i mean pop music because you, you know obviously you know you're very credible pop music but it was pop music and it was top 10 music and you were selling a lot of records but unlike so many other bands that followed in the in the subsequent decades you and a lot of these other bands you're talking about you know you were making your own music you weren't being kind of stage managed and choreographed by, by a record label and most of the other bands that were in the charts with you were like that weren't they I guess so, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were there were bands. I, I think even in the eighties that had stylists. I mean, mm. when that was, that would never have worked with us. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that we would have done. I, I mean, mm. I think we encountered a bit of that sometimes when we were asked to step outside of the realms of music and do um, photo shoots for some magazines where people would try and foist things on you. You know, um, mm. that never really. That never really worked for us. Um, no, there's a lot, lot of detail involved, wasn't there? Yeah, but um, it was. It wasn't sort of. You know, it was all kind of um, fairly organic, though. You know, you you got a lot of eye for detail, but it was kind of. I don't know. It wasn't that thought out. I, I I've also been asked to do things uh, more recently that where people reference old records and uh, people are surprised at how instinctive certain records were when we made them and they, they might have thought that they were well plotted out but sometimes they were a happy accident but there was no real formula um so you weren't sort of like yeah you know being calculated in well let's display this reference or or that <laughs> influence you're going in and you're making you know shout to the top How, how, does, how did a record like that start? Well, I mean, was uh, that just mucking around together? Or? Well, Paul had a demo. I went on holiday, came back. He'd written it at the piano. So it was quite a piano-led piece. And um, and then we just did it, you know. Uh, I I can't think. I mean, some of the uh, artwork and uh, covers were sort of like thought out a little bit. I mean, particularly our favourite shop was kind of earmarking a lot of things that had meant a lot to us throughout our life. And um, what about the, the, the politics? Obviously, you know, still now we were chatting the other day about, you know, they're still very powerful and extremely relevant lyrics, especially at a time like this, in songs like Lodgers and Walls Come Tumbling Down. How did you feel about that? Was that driven by both of you? Or was it more Paul's thing or what? Well, it was more that we, you, we were uh, 
we would seem to be seeing the same sort of bands at uh, a lot of benefits and things that we both agreed with uh it was a time of extreme change um i guess it's a time to be stand up and be counted you know um my dad was in a print union um what happened with the miners and lots of things there was lots of sort of landmark things that happened in the 80s do you have regrets do you do you feel proud do you think it achieved stuff i think well i think particularly our favorite shop is a very good document of where the country was at the time and and i i am really proud of that and i'm pleased that we did it when we got involved with red wedge that became a little bit tricky well that was like a sort of uh, an alliance of like maybe half a dozen bands at the start that had been turning up to a lot of benefits for different things anyway and really driven by billy bragg who'd uh, been our support on our very first tour um but it became tricky the more the closer you got to politics the more you saw what a slow moving beast it is and how full of compromises it is once you're part of an organization uh and and uh it kind of kind of overshadowed a lot of things i mean really proud of our favorite shop and what a document and diary it was of the times but we got to a point where journalists only wanted to speak about politics and not much about music one of the highlights a unique thing i would say was uh you were one of the first acts on at Live Aid. Yeah. You know, what were your memories of that day? Well, that was a big moment. Um, we, you know, it was quite a nerve-wracking thing. <laughs> it was it was a phenomenal achievement, and all credit to Bob Gilder for uh, pulling it all together, you know. It was an astonishing day. But it, we were very busy. We, we did about four things in that day. We, we, you know, it was just like, oh, we've got this gig at Wembley and then we've got to go down no, it's to... It's just another job then. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, after that, we went down to TV South or somewhere in Maidstone to record a TV thing with a live orchestra for a Matthew Kelly show <laughs> or something. <laughs> and then I was on BBC uh, Radio One Roundtable, the review programme... And then we went back for the finale at uh, Wembley. <laughs> wow. That's almost busier than Phil Collins' day because he just, you know, jetted from yeah. one continent to another, didn't he? He just yeah, did yeah. the two well, live shows. <laughs> you had a busier day. Yeah, we were just in cars going up and down the uh, <laughs> well, Not helicopters, because I know Noel Edmonds was flying a lot of the stars around in helicopters <laughs> that day. Were you were you just in a car? Yeah, yeah we, we, we weren't in a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, yeah, but <laughs> no, I, yeah, it it wasn't that humble. We were, it wasn't me and Paul on a tandem going up and down the A2, but um, it was a, it wasn't helicopters. Um, obviously, by the end of the eighties, you know, it's well documented that the the you know you, you, the the band fell out of the label over over your final record and. And then, you know, what, what was life like in, in the early years after the Star Council was all wrapped up? Uh, well, it was a pretty exciting time, actually, because just as the Star Council finished, there was sort of a bit of a scene at the studio we worked at where I was working with Dr. Robert at the Blow Monkeys. Mm. He was producing Dee's album. Uh, we, we were working on an album that didn't get released, the Star Council, and and then the early fledgling demos of the young disciples were being done there yeah and so that kind of straddled late 89 into 90 so once we got into the 90s the album that we called a new decade that never saw a new decade mm. <laughs> that remained buried for another 15 years or whatever it was uh didn't come out but by then i was working with um uh the young disciples quite heavily in the studio and uh, then i started working live with um galliano who were on the same record label talking so loud. i was talking loud yeah who were very big then weren't they early early 90s their acts were really like massive and you yeah. Were, yeah your your name popped up on so many of those famous talking loud albums yeah well that was just um it it just it was happy happy accident that all those bands sort of flourished just as um the one that I was in sort of folded. Um, so, you know. Just... And they, they were obviously of a younger generation than you and Paul, but 
Was there a feeling that they'd, you know, been influenced by you guys and you kind of became like godfathers on this new scene of sort of acid jazz that became a big thing then? Well, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, uh, we I don't to, know why uh, I'm asking you a question like that. You're the last person in the world who's ever going to say, yes, I was a godfather to this scene. Yes, I was a godfather. No, I wasn't. Yeah, that's me. I'm the godfather. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's me. No, no. <laughs> No, I was just, I was, just a, I was a shifty uncle on the fringes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, Mick, you uh, you ended up. I mean, we we missed it out, but you'd played live with Dex's Midnight Runners in the start of the nineteen eighties. But then you ended up getting involved again with Dex's. Was it the two thousand and three? Yeah, that's live right. Shows yeah. That they did? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did, how did that come about? Was that just Kevin Rowland getting in touch saying, you know, do you want to come get involved again? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Pete Williams, um, who was the original bass player, uh, yeah. who was in that new lineup again in 2003, more like a co-vocalist mm. by the time it was reformed, yeah. uh, he he mentioned me, and uh, I'd been in a band with Pete Williams in the early 80s called The Bureau, and uh, there was a guy that was interested in us, and I think uh, Warner's Archive or something, we're going to re-release the... Bureau album because it hadn't been out on CD and it, I don't know if it ever got a proper release in the UK even when we were only on vinyl um, so I sort of touched base with Pete and then he said he'd been approached by Kevin to do Dexys again and he mentioned being passing and Kevin said oh yeah I think that'd be good if we get Mick in so, so there's a slight gap there I was in it briefly from 1980 and then uh, I don't know how many years later <laughs> just like and and then that that was almost an aborted version of Dexys as well, wasn't it? Because I think there was a greatest hits came out and you did some live shows, but then it was about another nine years before well, the, uh, the the comeback album. Yeah, on paper it was like that. I think we did the thing in two thousand three. Uh, we did some live dates, um, and then I think uh, Kevin wanted to take a break. I think he was doing a script for something that he had in development. I know that there was some other dates that were muted and I was busy with someone I couldn't do them and I said listen you know we can we can do this in a couple of months time and he went no no I want to take time out because I think he was thinking about doing a book and then he had this script in development and mm. and I and um I just went oh, okay uh I said it's a shame because I thought the nucleus of the band was pretty good and it'd be good to do some uh, original stuff you know while the band was still sort of match fit but uh he'd already had these things mapped out from a long time going so yeah. i didn't really hear from him for about five years I, I i know that you said on paper it looked like there was a gap of about i don't know 12 years but um i i got back together with him in about 2008 and i think the album come out in 2012 i think that yeah it was kind of a result of those three or four years of um Working but on you, had, you just weren't you. You weren't just a keyboardist for hire, though. You had a, a big creative input in that album. You were musical director of the group. I think was your <laughs> official title, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's it's just a badge, you know. I, I, <laughs> it's nice though. I didn't ask to be the sheriff, uh, but uh, <laughs> I think that was a very strong lineup. And as long as you've got a good team and everyone knows what their job is, it's fine, mm. and it all work. You know. Long as well, I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm going to say, I, I love that album. Yeah, um, well, it's, one day I'm going to saw, and and I saw you live twice on that tour when uh, you played live, and it was really, really memorable. Brilliant, yeah, brilliant shows. Oh, there were a lot of good shows. Yeah, I think it was a good band. Yeah. I didn't see it as far as uh, when they did the week in the West End and they filmed it. I was out of it by then, uh, so right. I don't know whether you saw us saw that band when I was still in it or not, or 
whatever. I think, yeah, you were, I saw you in twice in the northeast at Whitley right. Bay and at the, the Sage of Gateshead as well. Oh yeah, I remember Whitley Bay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been in a lot of bands, Mick. You know, in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Uh, iconic ones too in the case of Style Council and Dexys I mean you must have a, a, a lot more experience than a lot of your contemporaries about what makes a good band what makes a bad band how the big moments happen what, do you have any insights about that from your experience about you know when a band are just getting it right and the chemistry's right and you produce great work um, I, sometimes it's a happy accident because some t- the most unique sounding bands sometimes you get four people at the core of that and they all want to be in a different band but something mm. about the noise they make together makes them unique um, mm. and uh, it, there's a, it's like I don't know it's like casting a film and I think you know the character actors and the people that play like uh, the tea lady are equally as important and um, <laughs> I, I mean I, as a kid I loved uh, the faces and when Rod Stewart went to LA he sort of lost something and it's not just the way he dressed uh, it's to do with like five people in a room that make a sort of unique sound you know um, when you made our favourite shot which is obviously you regard as the, the, the you know greatest record that Style Council released what was it then do you think what what was the what was the core what did you have then amongst the, the group of you the four or five or however many you thought were the core yeah well i think we'd solidified things by then uh steve white had come in and we started working with camille hines who was a great bass player um and we already had a kind of understanding uh with uh d so that that really played its part and i think the first album cafe blur was pretty experimental but i think once we'd been on the road we realized what our strengths were so we could focus on them a bit more and I, that probably makes our favorite shop a more accessible album than cafe blur but I, I quite like cafe blur as well because it's kind of it's got a kind of uh, a fearless quality i i think some people might think we're a bit cheeky taking certain things on but um i think it's nice to try and stretch yourself and uh, and also kind of your limitations can sometimes kind of form your own style in some ways it's as much what you can't do as what you can do that makes you unique you know mm. and now you've been you know a busy musician in various different bands working with with all sorts of names including roger daltrey in in recent years i mean how is life for you now what are you deriving the most satisfaction from musically um, well, it's uh, it's a little bit of a frustrating time as it is for anyone. Um, you know, uh, on paper, I was going to be halfway through about five albums that were happening this year, and it's a little bit frustrating to be sort of working with the demos on yeah. your own. Uh, but it's a tantalising prospect, and I will know all of the music for those albums a lot better than I would normally. So you know, <laughs> it's. Uh, one of those things I mean yeah in recent years it's been great I've, I've had the chance to work with Roger Daltrey on a few different things and Wilco Johnson I did a bit with Ray Davis of the Kinks um, and you know I always said I like the faces I've worked with Kenny Jones in the studio and I've worked with Ronnie Wood when I was part of uh, Jules Holland's big band so it's been nice you know and uh, and other other things as well I've done lots of things with quite rare sort of obscure soul people in in kind of uh, enclaves in Yorkshire where there's a <laughs> there was a guy called Dave Box who put us together with some great people some of whom I heard of some I hadn't who were just great to play with as well yeah and you still get just as much of a kick out of playing uh, as you as you ever did yeah I did I mean my favorite week uh, which uh, happened maybe um about 2000 I guess so that's 20 years ago but that's recent times to me when you're an old boy but um, (laughs) I had a week where I did uh, Glastonbury one weekend with Ocean Colour Scene the following weekend I did the Albert Hall with Burt Bacharach and an orchestra for a Nordoff Robbins tribute to Hal David and Burt Bacharach and all his music so Mm. Petula Clark, Sasha Distel all sorts of people on the stage and in the middle of that, I did a gig in a room over the Blue Posts around the back of the 100 Club with my mate oh, yeah. on ukulele. 
and me on an electric <laughs> piano and that was probably the best gig out of the three you know <laughs> and you still play from time to time with paul uh, uh yeah i played on the new album i'm on uh the village single um we were filming at his studios for a documentary that's supposed to be coming out uh september i think on sky about the star council but mm. once we'd wrapped the film in paul uh just sort of asked me if i'd play uh hammond organ on a few tracks but it was all done in a bit of a blur. I actually thought I played on two, but it turns out I'm on three. I've seen a press release that says I'm on three anyway. <laughs> but <laughs> do you, do you know, you're, you're, you're a family man, aren't you, as well, Mick? I yeah. mean, do you, do you feel uh, blessed that you got through, you know, uh, a famously hedonistic era in a famously hedonistic <laughs> industry in one piece and that your, your life seems settled and happy now? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I you know, I... I I think I'd be the same if I was sort of like whatever profession I'm in really um, you know, most of my friends who I socialise with are not musicians not that I don't get on right. with them <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy to be with real people as well you know because I yeah. consider myself one <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, what do you are there, you know you've played with so many of your own heroes um, is there anything left that's on your sort of you know list you, you, of ambitions that you haven't achieved? Uh, not not particularly. I mean, I, I just I'm I like seeing what's happening. I mean, I I had surreal moments. I mean, I played with Martha Reeves a couple of times, and I can remember wow. I used to give my dad a list. There was a vintage record store near the warehouse that he worked at, and he used to get things for me. And I wanted to get Nowhere to Run by Martha Reeves, and he went, "What's on mm. your list this week? I'll go there this Friday." And I can still remember getting that single, and 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 then you know I fast forward many years, and I'm there playing with the woman that's on it. It's that's a real buzz, and uh, you know <laughs> I haven't got people on my wish list. Uh, there might be people that I keep private that I'd like to work with, but it's just it's mm. been a treat to work with lots of people anyway. Lots of you know Motown people with particularly females really done Brenda Holloway, the Velvetts. Martha Reeves, Frida Payne, people like that. Um, wow. Edwin Starr. It's, uh, you know, and when you look back on it, you just think, right, I sound quite busy, but there's still a lot of times when you're not that busy, but it, it looks good on paper, you know. Well, uh, the one thing is, Mick, listen, we're really grateful that you've, that you've taken time to speak to us because, you know, I know you're not the sort of bloke who, who seems to like smoke being blown up your ass but you know i've told you prior to this interview you know we're massive fans we're, we're so grateful for your time and for all the music you've given us i just think that you're a bit too modest though mate because you know th these are life-changing records that you've played on for so many different people and you played a big role in people's lives but i feel like you're just you know you, you almost don't acknowledge it enough to yourself yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate i appreciate people's passion uh, you know you're never tired of people liking things that you've done and uh you know but it's uh it's a case of um, there's so much uh, good fortune in it. I mean, me and Sam will both say that the Star Council were better than the Jam, won't we, Sam? We do say that all the time. <laughs> we, we do. I mean, it's just like, you know, that, that's, but I suppose it's the, the influences and the way that you, you, you know, everything about you is just more up our street, really. And well, I, think that, I think actually there's been a lot of revisionism about that over the last 10 years because there was a period where people weren't, didn't feel that way. But I think now more and more people say the same. Yeah. And we're very excited about the documentary as well. Yeah, well, hopefully. I mean, I think, you know, on the back of the documentary, there's going to be a box set and there might be some things that haven't seen the light of day before. And um, it's nice that it's being reappraised. I mean, I don't look backward too much. Um, you know, I'm not unnostalgic, but I'm not uh, always gazing back. But it's uh, it's been a period of retrospective uh, viewing, uh, Right, we're, we're at the finishing line now, mate. Um. Humans of Honour. And it turned out that was the finishing line because the recording then completely packed up uh, after a few problems. We were we stopping had. and starting uh, and stopping and starting and stopping. Where it we? ended. There's a lot to be said for just ending an interview like that and yeah. not doing all the niceties at the end. Just go, right, that's it now. Stop. Yeah. And just end it. 
It's like the French exit at a party. You know, when, instead yes. of doing the big sort of like, bye, oh, it's great to see you, we must see you again again. Oh, yeah. yeah, great. All that bollocks. You just think, fuck this. And you just go. You go. Switch the recording I'm, off. Yeah. I'm, I'm going for a piss. And then you fuck off, right? That's how I've always left it. That's how I've left every social event I've ever been to. Yeah. And it's the same with interviews. You don't do the awkward wrapping it up. So, yeah. and Mick had been very patient because the line kept dropping, uh, probably mm. something to do with COVID-19. So, we got out and we did, so, yeah. but I think we got enough. One thing we missed, though, that I want to say is that we asked him before, the bit that we lost off the end of the recording. I said, "What are you listening to? Got any recommendations?" Yeah, and uh, he said, "Well, he said the Black Pumas, who are a band that I right. I like." So I was really pleased yeah. he said that. It made me feel good about myself. Um, there was and, a, an Icelandic singer songwriter called Junius Mervant. As yeah, well, I haven't got a chance to listen. An Icelandic soul scene. We haven't had a chance to listen yet, but we'll chuck that in there because sounds good, um, it sounds good. And we've looked at a picture of him, and he looks impressive too. He looks good. He looks the part. Yeah. <laughs> he does. So that's a little bit of extra. But what a guy, eh? Mick Talbot. Yeah. Gentleman a human of honour. Human of honour. There yeah. we are. Yeah. We didn't get to bestow that on him officially at the end, but there you go. We'll send him. We're Mick, sending him a crown a in the post. We'll send him the, the plaque and all yeah. that. Yeah. So that's, that's that for this one. We'll have another one soon, hopefully, um, yeah. once we've worked out who we want to talk to. So, uh, yeah, TTFN. See ya. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns